from the ACLU. This is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. Just two months ago, Brooklyn Center, a suburb of Minneapolis, was the backdrop of yet another incident of police brutality when 20-year-old Dante Wright was fatally shot by an officer during a traffic stop. The incident happened just 10 miles from the courthouse where Derek Chauvin was on trial for the death of George Floyd. Outrage community members gathered in front of the Brooklyn Center Police Department for consecutive days demanding change. And this time, their calls were answered. One month after Dante Wright was killed, the city council passed a resolution that created an alternative to police response for both mental health calls and some traffic stops. The resolution is called the Dante Wright and Kobe Dimmick-Heisler Community Safety and Violence Prevention Resolution, named after the two people killed by local police in the last two years. One of the driving forces behind the resolution was Brooklyn Center Mayor Mike Elliott. Mayor Elliott came to the U.S. at the age of 11, fleeing from civil war in Liberia. Before running for mayor, he had started a mentoring program, working with Brooklyn Center schools to serve low-income students. He joins us today along with Taylor Pendergrass, the deputy director of campaigns for the ACLU Smart Justice Program, to talk about what other communities can learn from the example of Brooklyn Center. Mayor Elliott and Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Molly. I wanted to start with you, Mayor Elliott. Can you take us through the evolution that led to this resolution resoundingly passing in Brooklyn Center? So sort of what started the momentum and what role did you personally play? So what started the momentum obviously started with the momentous uh, event of the Brooklyn Center police officer shooting and killing the unarmed young Black man, Dante Wright. And what ensued was our community at once grappling with that tragedy that we've all seen over and over and over and over all too often. So our community mobilized, people came out and wanted accountability. They demanded accountability. They demanded not only accountability, but transformation. They wanted once and for all a change We listened to the community really early on. I had reached out to the ACLU to help us imagine what that change would look like. Obviously, ACLU has a lot of expertise and a long history in protecting the civil liberties of American citizens. And so I reached out to the ACLU and then got connected with Taylor, and we worked together to craft what this new future for public safety would look like here in Brooklyn Center. What was in the back of that was a number of community listening sessions we held where community came out and told us what they wanted to see, the change they wanted to see. We had another listening session at the high school where these group of very visionary, I would say, young people came out and spoke. And they, very specifically, I remember, they said, we want to police our own community. Or we we want to provide the safety programs for our own community. We want community responses. We don't want police. In fact, they organized and canceled the contract that they had with the Brooklyn Center Police Department to have 
officers in the building. And so they no longer have officers in the building. They demanded that from their school board. And so these were a group of uh, young people who were very determined. They knew I was just so incredibly impressed at just how well they articulated what the future that they wanted to see. And it gave me uh, great courage and it gave me great hope for the future. Your response to the death of Dante Wright doesn't seem like it was necessarily the norm for a mayor or for any local leader. And I'm curious, when you heard about the death of Dante Wright, what made you decide, I'm going to do something a little bit different? I think for me, it's deeply rooted in my experience. I've, you know, had the experience of being pulled over by police in situations where I knew I wasn't supposed to be you know, pulled over or I knew that I wasn't supposed to be taken out of my car and searched. And I knew I wasn't supposed to be taken to be shown to people on two different occasions, white people in windows to identify me as whether or not I'm a suspect in a crime. In one case that didn't happen, uh, in the other case, I'm not sure if it happened or not. And one of those incidents was when you were still really young, right? Yes. In high school, I, uh, myself and another young Black man, we were playing in the park with a group of other multiracial kids. And, you know, Brooklyn Center Police came over and saw fit to only grab the two young Black men that were there. I think at the time we were probably maybe ninth grade. I would say. And the the Brooklyn Center Police came over and and took just the two of us, put us in the back of a squad car and then took us just a few blocks over to someone who was in a window. I think it was uh, a, a white lady and took us out one at a time and showed us to this woman in the window and to have her say whether or not she believed that we were involved in whatever crime she had reported. You know, we were fortunate to be let go, but the shame of coming back and trying to continue to play with our other schoolmates in the park there is something that is really unbearable. And then, you know, being pulled over in Minneapolis again for going in and out of an Aldi store, coming out of the store with a shopping cart, and then taking the shopping cart back in the store and then subsequently getting back in my car, pulling out of the parking lot to the stop sign immediately at the end of the block. And an officer puts their lights on and I have to pull over less than a block after shopping. And the officer says, uh, do you know why I pull you over? And I say no. And he says, uh, well, I was watching you. You went in and out of the store. And do you have any drugs on you? (laughs) And uh, so in North Minneapolis, it's a crime if you shop at the Aldi over there on 34th and Penn and you return the the cart in the store. Somehow that means you're dealing drugs. So it's those types of incidents and countless others that gave me a real insight into this problem of over-policing in black and brown communities. 
And Taylor, I want to bring you in here. What was your reaction when you heard from Mayor Elliott? Was it a phone call? Had you known him ahead? What went through your mind when you heard from him? That's a great question. I think ACLU's across the country are in conversation with community members and elected leaders about how we can prevent the type of harm that ended up in taking the life of Dante Wright from occurring in the first place. But when I received the phone call from Mayor Elliott in Brooklyn Center, it was clear that there was a different kind of opportunity and a different kind of vision for transforming community safety in Brooklyn Center than we had ever really been in conversation with elected leaders about. As Mayor Elliott said, he was looking to transform the entire public safety structure in his city and to do it in a way that would look upstream at what had gone wrong for so many decades in his community and to take police officers out of the type of situations that tragically and almost predictably result in unnecessary stops and arrest and detention and and violence and brutality and even death. The other dimension that was so exciting and critical was the deep relationship that the mayor and other city council people had with the community and the direction that they were taking directly from community members. It was clear that this was a very collaborative, inclusive conversation amongst the Brooklyn Center community leaders and activists and their elected representatives. So it just seemed like all the pieces were in place to try to do something that had never really been done in any city before, which was to emerge from one of these tragedies, not just talking about individual accountability and justice in the individual case, which of course is incredibly important, for the community and for Dante Wright's family, but also to talk about systemic accountability and transformational change that would prevent the grief and the pain that Dante Wright's family experienced from happening to additional families when their children are pulled over at traffic stops in the future. I wanted to get into the resolution itself a little bit. Mayor Elliott, can you walk us through what the law will change about how Brooklyn Center handles public safety issues? This resolution, I think, really sets us up to completely transform our public safety system. Number one, it creates this framework for being able to implement a number of different types of responses as we develop them. Uh, Initially, it sets us up to have a citywide citation and summons policy, which we think is just really transformative because, first of all, it prevents the arrests of people for non-moving traffic violations, non-felony offenses, or non-felony warrants. It requires police officers to issue citations only, and it prohibits custodial arrests for these low-level offenses, which, you know, we think that this stops police from interacting with our residents in a way that could potentially end up being deadly. And that's just for a reminder, that's how Dante Wright died. He was pulled over for expired tabs, I think, um, and then it escalated from there. Um, So this this was a critical point, particularly in light of that. 
I also wanted to ask you, you know, if I'm a member of your community and I see a situation where something is transpiring, a mental health situation, or something that is not at the level of, you know, a violent interaction, and I know I need to call somebody and I don't want to call 911 in its normal incarnation, what is different about when I call 911 in Brooklyn Center now? So what's different is you're going to get a dispatch that's going to have a myriad of uh, options in terms of what the response is going to be to your particular situation that is more appropriate for providing the help that you actually need. Now, when you dial 911, the dispatcher decides whether it's going to be a fire response or an ambulance that you need or police officer that you need. In some cases, they send everybody. What you'll get now, though, is and uh, the, the added options of, for instance, it's a mental health related call, that dispatcher is going to send a team of mental health professionals to respond to that particular call. And as we identify other types of community-based responses uh, that are available, that we have people who are trained civilians to deliver, those options are going to become available to that dispatcher as well to respond to those situations. So we think it's going to be a much more diverse set of options for meeting the diverse set of needs in our community when our community needs a response, a public safety response. The resolution is partly named after Kobe Demick Hasler, the young man who was shot and killed by Brooklyn Center police officers whose grandparents had called for help. And because they knew the dangers of having a police officer respond to a mental health call, subsequently called back and told them to not come, told them everything is fine, we are okay. And the officers came anyway. The grandfather tried to prevent the officers from coming into the house by going outside when they arrived and said, don't come inside. He's fine. And they said they had to enter the home anyway. And as a result, they entered the home and told the young man that they were going to take him in. And I think that if I remember correctly, this was over a period where there's a holiday coming up and the young man just did not want to be taken in. Uh, into the hospital, remain there like Brooklyn Center Police had done just months earlier. As a result, things escalated. He did not want to go be taken into the hospital, and they ended up shooting this young man. So rather than having that type of situation happen, having a mental health team that is professional, they're trained, this is what they do, having them respond would I believe, prevent any future killing of that kind. And Taylor, can I bring you in here? Can you give us a sort of national context about why addressing the sector of low-level violations and disability-related calls is so critical? I think it's important to first underscore that about 80% of the activity that armed police officers respond to are low-level petty misdemeanor crimes, marijuana possession, disorderly conduct, the types of things that often are indicative of people who are in poverty, 
who are suffering from a mental health crisis, who have a disability, and just in general, pose no threat to anyone's public safety. That's about 80% of the time that armed police officers, that prosecutors and courts spend in our criminal legal system dealing with. Not the serious threats of violence that are probably most concerning to community members and not the type of serious threats to health and safety that police officers themselves and prosecutors and courts often claim is, you know, their focus and and mandate and priority. Now, the types of solutions that have been put forward in Brooklyn Center that are drawing on some best practices and models from across the country are really just recognizing that armed police officers should not be the first, last, and only response to the vast majority of needs that the community has Mayor Elliott, you know, you had mentioned in passing that the resolution also addressed police contracts. Can you explain why it was important to include contracts into this mix and also particularly include civilian say in those contracts? This is incredibly important for us. So these police union contracts are the blueprint for how they are going to exist within our city They sort of laid the foundation in terms of the role that they were going to play, how they're going to be held accountable. And we wanted to make sure that our community had a say in what went into that contract. And so we've set up a process where, you know, it's not just our negotiator negotiating with the police union. It's our negotiator. It's our community that's giving input and is able to say, This is not acceptable for our community. Yeah, and Taylor, can you also address how this is in stark contrast to how these contracts are normally negotiated? I mean, I know of the case of the Louisville Police Department, even while people were in the streets outraged over the death of Breonna Taylor, those contracts were getting negotiated in the shadows. And those contracts are also a path to oftentimes impunity for misconduct. Yeah, that's exactly right. The contracts that have been negotiated by Fraternal Order of Police and other police associations have really locked in a legal architecture of impunity across the country that just has outrageously unfair and opaque provisions that prevent the public from knowing whether a police officer has been disciplined in an incident of misconduct, that prevents the city from sometimes firing or disciplining officers who have committed, you know, anything from an unlawful traffic stop all the way to an unjustified killing of a civilian. And the negotiation process for these collective bargaining agreements often happens in a closed-door meeting between a few people on the municipal government and the FOP. Even law enforcement officers, I think, who want to implement reforms in their own agencies have found themselves stymied by these union contracts. So it's one of the remarkable things about the Brooklyn Center resolution is how many great things are in the resolution, how many groundbreaking things and unprecedented things are in the resolution. And this particular component of bringing the community to the table for the collective bargaining process simply opening the doors and making sure that everyone can see what the terms and provisions are and have the ability to comment on them, I think is going to go a really long way in ensuring that 
the collective bargaining agreements that police officers have with the city is focused on the things that are the proper subject of collective bargaining and labor union organization. There was opposition from law enforcement to this resolution. Was there any support? Oh, absolutely. We had support from the law enforcement community. We have to remember law enforcement doesn't necessarily want to be in, nor are they trained to make mental health response calls and, you know, respond in a lot of these situations where their training and their preference would rather be actually dealing with much more serious violent crime. And so uh, we had support from law enforcement, uh, former chief of police who testified in favor of the resolution, in favor particularly that that provision uh, of having uh, unarmed civilians respond to mental health calls. Our, you know, local Brooklyn Center Police Union was largely in support of the resolution as well. And so I think that's important to underscore that this evolution, this model that we're going to, I think has uh, way more support from law enforcement than, than we give it credit for than the few loud voices that come out in opposition to these changes. And are these responses already in effect, or is it going to take some time to ramp up? This will take some time to implement. We are uh, right now going through the implementation phase of the resolution, and we're hoping sooner rather than later. And the, the reason that's important is, on average, in Brooklyn Center, the police shoot and kill someone every 18 months. And if you look at the time between when Kobe was killed and when Dante was killed, it was precisely 19 months and a week. And so we have our work cut out for us, but we're on the timeline. We want to make sure that we prevent any future police killings. I feel like Brooklyn Center is really standing out right now as a model for how this can be done as far as setting that example. Like how are you, what are your plans to report back on the results, on how it's going? Because it feels like this could be a model for other cities to take, but only if you can prove that it works and that it's practical and implementable. Part of the resolution is to ensure that there's transparency, make sure that there's data, tracking of data and how we're doing and publishing that data on our website so that all can see uh, whether we're actually making progress in reducing harm and reducing these disparities and uh, public safety law enforcement, particularly. We're going to make adjustments as we go along and we'll have public reports to our city council and to the general public. The one thing we want to make sure of is that we're doing everything that we're doing. We're doing it right and we're doing it in a way that offers transparency for all to be able to see how well we're doing. And Taylor, I'm curious, you know, last summer, the terms that became more popularly used were divest, reinvest for the change we want to see or full abolition. Where does this resolution fall within that spectrum of overarching change? What the Brooklyn Center resolution recognizes is a truth that I think exists in almost all communities across the United States, which is that we have overinvested in policing as sometimes the sole response to public safety and community safety. Brooklyn Center is a great example of a community where I believe 
something, Mayor Elliott, like over 40% of the city's general fund is spent on policing. Is that normal or is that more than we've seen in other cities? That seems very high. I think it's above average for most cities, but it's also not unprecedented. I mean, I think when you look at both the absolute number in terms of millions and billions of dollars that are spent on policing by cities and even percentage of the general operating budget, cities are spending a disproportionate amount of their public funds on armed police, again, for a vast majority of activity, 80% of which might be low-level misdemeanors and really doesn't need an armed police response at all on the one end of the spectrum and then on the other end of the spectrum, not funding at all things like crisis response teams or civilian traffic enforcement, let alone recreation centers, employment programs, affordable housing, schools, things that we know that we have hard evidence that investing in those other types of social services in addition to be more racially just, in addition to being better services for the community, also reduces crime, also improves public safety. There's also very encouraging evidence from cities who have adopted these approaches that they can actually save money. The CAHOOTS model, which is a crisis response team model in Eugene, Oregon, has saved that city millions of dollars a year because sending armed police and patrol cars out to the scene of an unhoused person who needs some assistance or out to the scene of someone who's having a bipolar episode is actually also incredibly costly strictly from a financial perspective. So I think what the Brooklyn Center City Council and community has committed itself to is really evaluating top to bottom how their tax dollars are being spent. I would certainly anticipate that some of it will be rebalanced. I also anticipate that there will be some cost savings and efficiencies that can be uncovered as they really roll up their sleeves and get into the weeds of the implementation. So this is the beginning of a divest reinvestment model. I think it's simply assessing our public safety needs and assessing where we need to make the appropriate investments and making sure that we have these sort of common sense approaches to public safety that allows us to have a range of responses and to make sure that we're allocating resources appropriately to really get at how we properly you know, make sure everybody feels safe in our community. And, you know, it's not lost on me that a city like Edina uh, here in Minnesota spends you know, maybe 14% of its budget on police, but yet we spend 43% of our budget on police. That's not lost on me. And all of the data shows that if you invest in jobs and people's ability to have access to good quality food, housing that is affordable, childcare that is affordable, if you make sure that you know, you're investing in those things and people have those sort of solid foundations and kids have opportunity, you know, you have less need for policing in your community. But not only that, you have a much safer community. So we're just sort of taking a wide-eyed approach at what we need to do to make sure Brooklyn Center is the best place to live in Minnesota, no matter who you are. And the question of, to me, it's not a question of, Police, it's not about policing, it's about public safety. It's about making sure that our community is the best place to live. 
And Taylor, I'm curious, how does Brooklyn Center's resolution stack up to some of the movement on the federal level? Like, what is happening on the federal level, and how does it compare with the Brooklyn Center resolution? I mean, the leadership on this is coming at the municipal level. It's coming from leaders like Mayor Mike. And in some ways, I think that makes sense. You know, policing is a local issue. There are thousands of police departments across the country that are all, you know, municipal agencies that should be responsible to their communities. And local mayors and local community members and city council people should be the ones who are doing the transformational work. What is happening in cities like Brooklyn Center and other places like Ithaca, Rochester, Oakland, Berkeley is really at the vanguard of where reimagining public safety and transforming public safety is and in some ways needs to be and will lead uh, federal changes, will lead state-level changes. It's also an incredibly empowering thing, I think, for anyone who's listening to this podcast to know that they can start making change in their own backyard right now. And, And really, in some ways, that's the most effective place to be doing the work. Anyone who cares about police violence, who cares about racial injustice, can start to reach their local council members and their local mayors tomorrow and encourage them to look at the Brooklyn Center resolution as a model that should be introduced in their own cities. And there's a lot of power in that and a lot of possibility for transformational change happening at the local city level that I don't think we will see, you know, for years at the federal level still. Even with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act? I think if the George Floyd and Justice and Policing Act passes, it will be a big step forward at the federal level on some important but, you know, smaller pieces of accountability for police officers. But really the conceptual shift, the narrative shift, the policy, you know, transformation that's been accomplished in Brooklyn Center is no longer talking so narrowly about what happens after a police officer has killed a community member after a police officer has harmed a community member, but instead talking about how do we prevent those things from happening at all in the first place. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is not yet making that shift. It is much more focused on those kind of post-incident accountability measures, being able to hold police officers accountable in court, which is really important for family members and for communities in terms of that type of justice and accountability but I don't think is yet anywhere in the universe of what the Brooklyn Center resolution accomplishes in terms of reducing the footprint of policing in situations where armed police officers aren't necessary and avoiding entirely the types of interactions that can escalate into these tragic incidents of violence. And Mayor Elliott, I actually want to end with you. If you imagine being in a a big room, if you were sitting with every single city community leader in the country right now, what message would you pass to them regarding the future of policing in America or the future of public safety in America? My message would be, it's time for change. It's time for us to, as leaders, step up and lead and to listen to our community You know, these changes that we've implemented are common sense approaches to public safety. And if implemented, they really go to protecting all members of our community. Don't wait. Start implementing these changes in your community now. 
they call for really common sense things like police not responding to mental health calls because they're not mental health professionals. It's just common sense, right? Police are, are not experts in responding to unhoused people. So let's not send them to deal with unhoused people. Our resolution is available online. All city leaders can take a look at it and uh, implement a version of it that's going to work best for their community. But I would encourage all leaders to be at the forefront of this, be ahead of it, and uh, be a leader. Well, Mayor Elliott and Taylor, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mom. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.